we have been, if you are joining us here this morning as a visitor, we've been working our way through the New Testament book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy is, um, in your Bibles, is right between the book of 1 Timothy and Titus. And there's a bunch, God very conveniently put a bunch of T books all together in a row. You've got 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus. And 2 Timothy is right there in the middle of the pack. 2 Timothy is unique, though, among Paul's letters. Paul's letters um, make up a large portion of our New Testaments. But 2 Timothy is his very last letter. I was reading, one, uh, reading John Stott's commentary on 2 Timothy this past week. John Stott is a preacher, a Bible scholar, or was. He has, of course, gone to sleep in the Lord. Um, but um, he said that it's his conviction that this was written probably weeks or maybe just a month or so before his execution. I don't know where he gets that, gets that idea. Uh, I, I don't know. But one thing is clear, Paul does not know but he believes that the end is near for him, saying in verse 6 of this last chapter that the time of his departure has come. Uh, obviously, he holds some hope that there is at least some more time for him. He said, and urges Timothy to come to him before winter, which tells us that this was written either in the spring or the summer of the year. And we don't know if Timothy ever got there. We just really don't know. But one thing is clear that 2 Timothy is his last hurrah. This is his last letter, and here in the closing chapter of 2 Timothy, uh, he has some very pointed things to say to, to his young mentee, Timothy. I'm going to go ahead and read the entire chapter. You can follow along with me in your Bibles. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Paul says this. He says, I charge you In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions." And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. 
But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to us, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the others. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Uh, one of the things that really strikes me here in the last chapter of Second Timothy is uh, this weird kind of mix of the ordinary and the mundane with like these really high, lofty ideas. And isn't that just true of what's in this room this morning? I mean, he has instructions like, bring me my cloak, mixed with this very heavy charge, preach the word, and they're kind of standing side by side. And doesn't that feel like the days that you're living in? Like this morning, this gathering, there's so much here that is ordinary and mundane. And then there's also the weightiest, most profound and needed things on the planet are happening in the midst of our conversation as a church. Uh, I think just by the way, uh, I had an interesting, I, why his cloak was left at Troas is maybe he got arrested there. Somebody had that idea, like maybe that's where they tracked him down and picked him up. And so that's where he was living last. Maybe, I don't know. And maybe his thing with Alexander the coppersmith, whoever that is, uh, somebody speculated that maybe that's who got him arrested. I don't know. I wish I could spend, as I got into this chapter this week, I was like, oh man, I'm going to have a hard time doing this in one Sunday morning. So we have to, I think, try and look at what's most needed in this chapter. There's a lot I'd like to spend time on and think about and study with you, and maybe we'll come back to it at some point. But I want to look at two things, and I want to start with this idea. If you were with us last week, we talked in part about the misdirected loves. In chapter 3, Paul spends a considerable amount of that chapter talking about these loves that people will have in the last days. Paul said to Timothy that in these last days, we would, there would be great difficulty and people would be lovers of self, lovers of money, and lovers of pleasure, and they would not be lovers of God. And lovers of self, that's narcissism. And lovers of money, that's materialism. And lovers of pleasure, that's hedonism. And our culture today is shot through with these three impulses. People living in these last days are narcissists through and through. The world ends at the tip of their nose. And they're materialists. And they're lovers of pleasure. In fact, they'll reorganize the world around what they find pleasure in. And because these are the loves that they have oriented their whole lives around, they will inevitably, Paul says, leave a long, tragic trail of injured people in their wake. Human wreckage follow in the wake of people who have oriented their lives around these misdirected loves. In chapter 3, Paul cataloged all kinds of twisted brokenness that follow. 
when a person makes these loves rather than a love for God central to their lives. In His Word, God tells us, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. He says that in 1 John 4.20. If you love God, but you hate your brother, you're lying. You cannot love God and hate your brother, according to God. And if you live a life that is hateful of others, you are no lover of God. And we see that there is this great connection that runs all through Scripture that demonstrates that we will love others best when we love God most. My hope for my marriage doesn't rest that Sarah's love for me will persist and endure. (laughs) I hope that she will continue loving God. And because she loves God will love me the way Jesus did. Not because I'm a good guy, because I'm not. Ask her. But because she is doing her best as a wife in the midst of that relationship to love me like Christ did. And so I think we get to see this thing where if we are a lover of self, people are disposable. They're exploitable. Their benefit must line up with their utility to me. And if it doesn't, what use are they? It's a pretty savage, brutal thing. And that's the word Paul uses to describe what follows these misdirected loves. It's brutal. And so one of the things we need to see here is that we will love others best when we love God most. And when we we replace a love for God with love of self or money or pleasure... What results is not a greater capacity to love and serve others, but rather we grow in our capacity to make use of people, exploiting them, breaking promises, taking, betraying, lying, injuring, and hating. So part of what we saw in our study of chapter 3 last week was the way these misdirected loves bring injury and not healing. And we saw how the Holy Spirit, the inspired Word of God, and the Spirit-filled people of God are means of grace that work together in our lives to train us away from these misdirected loves and back to an active love of God and an active love for others. Most of your social suffering, that is the suffering you've experienced at the hands of people, social suffering is tied to these misdirected loves that Paul chronicles in chapter 3. But the great hopeful thing is this, that wherever God's people live out the truths of the Bible in sincerity, not perfection, but sincerity, we begin to taste in a small, imperfect way something better, something that will taste in its fullness when Jesus comes back. And I believe that that is something I've begun to taste here among you. I really mean it. Again, you're not perfect, and I'm not perfect. We're not perfect together. But here, there is a sincerity, and as we live, and we walk together in the light of Scripture together, I begin to taste something that we will realize in its fullness when Jesus comes back, that there is grace and love and a desire to seek our joy and the joy of others and to serve one another well. So part of what we saw in chapter 3 was that. But that was all last week. So why am I still talking about it? (laughs) Well, here's why. In a moment, I want to get to the thing that I think is most important to Paul 
in his closing words to Timothy. But here at the beginning of chapter 4, we are shown one more way that living your life with a love for God at the center is superior to loving oneself. Look at what Paul says about his own imminent death. He says, and I'm going to read it again, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing." Here's what I want to put out there, and I want to spare any of you from. How unspeakably terrible and how unspeakably terrifying is death to someone who has built their lives around love of self, love of money, and love of pleasure. How terrible and terrifying is the end Because if your greatest love and treasure is something other than God, I can tell you something about it. If the thing you love most is not God, I can tell you some things about what you love. Because if your greatest love and treasure is that it is earthbound, it is temporary, and the day is going to come when you'll have to leave it or it's going to leave you. It does not follow you into the great beyond. Randy Alcorn uses this analogy, and I really like it. Just imagine with me that I could put my finger, boop, and there's a dot appears here in the air above my head. And then I take my finger and I start to draw a line away from that dot, and it just extends out, and then I just kind of shoot it. And that line just goes out. It goes all the way out to Ashland, (laughs) and then out into the woods, and I don't even know what's past that. Don't go out there. (laughs) It's scary. There's probably monsters. And it goes way out there and keeps going and going and going and going and going out into the black, inky reaches of space, and it just keeps going and going and going out past the stars and the cosmos, out to places that human beings don't even have never seen with their eyes, and it just keeps going and going and going. In fact, it's infinite. Can you grasp with your mind the infinitude of space? It just goes and goes and goes and goes, never ending. If you have built your life around love of self, love of money, love of pleasure, everything you love has its beginning and its end in this blip of a dot that I first drew. Paul is no such human being. He's oriented his life around a love which extends into infinity and to quote Buzz Lightyear and beyond. (laughs) Right? The gospel according to Buzz Lightyear. I mean, one of the things that Jesus said that has to impress itself in on our consciousness here as we look at how Paul talks about him coming to the end 
and about those people who have lived their lives oriented around these misdirected loves is what Jesus says in Matthew 16. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? How foolish are people of these last days living? And I don't say that to make fun of them. It's just tragic to witness. What a horrific trade. What a horrific thing. In Psalm 63, 3 through 4, we read this. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Better than life? Someone who's a lover of self, lover of money, lover of pleasure, cannot wrap their mind around the idea that anything is preferred to life. How can that be? Life is what we love. For people of the last day, lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, narcissists, materialists, hedonists, death is the end of the ride. There is nothing better. There's no pleasure in the grave. There's no profit either. There's no boasting in luxury or attainment. For a lover of self, the reality of death, it exposes them. It strips them bare and shows how empty and meaningless and small and selfish all of their pursuits ever really were. For such a person, and this is sad, this world is as good as it ever gets. And when they come to the end, they are filled with a longing for more days. More days to continue their love affair with the world. And they look forward to death with dread and fear. They've danced, and now they have to pay the fiddler. However, let's look again at Paul. For Paul, this life... It's not as good as it will ever get. It is as bad as it will ever get. And to him, death is not the closing of a door. It's the opening of one. Paul looks back over his life like a tired worker at the end of a productive but meaningful and purposeful day. And he looks forward to the promised reward. I think Paul would no more envy the worldly, their riches and their freedom and their good opinion in Nero's Rome than he would have envied Esau his bowl of stew. What a trade. <laughs> Paul's attitude towards his own death must have seemed strange, I think, to people who were looking on. He doesn't rail against Nero or the injustice of the courts. There's no bitterness or regret. As the end comes into view, Paul speaks of departure and reward. The word for departure that Paul uses, he says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. And that word departure is an interesting one. In the Greek, it literally means to untie. It was a word commonly used by sailors to describe the act of letting a boat slip from its moorings. If you imagine a boat tied off, you untie it so it can put, off, put out to sea. That's the word that Paul uses. And that's descriptive of how he's viewing what's going to come. He sees death as a release and a departure. 
Let's remember that this is the man who said in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul looks back over his life, not with bitter regret, but he asserts positively that he has fought the good fight. He's finished the race. He's held fast to the faith. He was a soldier on mission. He was an athlete who disciplined his body and played by the rules, and he was a hardworking farmer who toiled for a harvest, and now he stands to enter into the fruit of all his labors. And now comes victory. The race is done. He's going to trade his cross for a crown. For lovers of self, death stands to separate them from what they love. But Paul loves the appearing of his God. And because that's true, death is not separating him from what he loves, but it is actually moving him toward it. Don't feel bad for Paul in the Mamertine prison. The Romans imagine they're putting him to death, but they're setting him free. Charles Spurgeon, commenting on these poignant lines from Paul, said this, "'To come to God is to come home from exile, to come to land out of the raging storm, to come to rest after long labor, to come to the goal of my desires and the summit of all my wishes.'" This reminds me of those two thieves on either side of the cross when Jesus was crucified. You remember the one railed against Jesus and said, prove yourself. If you really are who you say you are, get me down from here. He wanted to some more days to continue his love affair with the world. But on the other side was a man who said, be quiet. What are you talking about? This man did nothing wrong. And Jesus only answered one of those two men, and that was the one who didn't rail against him, but recognized him for who he was. And to that one, he said, you'll be with me in paradise. I want us to see here that the first man to one side of Jesus was a lover of self, a lover of money, a lover of pleasure. And he saw Jesus as a means, as useful, not precious, not good. The other saw in him something worthy. And we see the same spirit in Paul. Paul's prayers, Paul's, what he says is not a pleading for more time. It's not a pleading for deliverance. It is a resting, a resting in what God has promised to give him in eternity. It says, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Loved his appearing. When Jesus is, tells us about the day when he comes back, he had this to say in Matthew 24. He says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why do they mourn when Jesus comes back? Because it's the end of the ride. They were lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure. They did not love his appearing. They lived for this, not for that. 
and it's tragic. Now, I suspect if Paul was sitting here in the front row listening to, listening to me, doing my feeble best to unpack this part of his final letter, he'd be very frustrated. <laughs> he'd probably be up and stomping around and saying, yeah, get out of the way. No doubt he would. But I really do imagine he'd be getting annoyed with me. Uh, because I have not yet gotten to the part of this last section of his letter that was clearly most important to him. And to him, that would have been a crime. Maybe it is. He says this. This, I think, is the part of the letter that Paul would want me to most emphasize and clearly highlight. He said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the death, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Look at the dramatic way and with such strong language Paul frames this for Timothy. There is this strongly worded charge. This is the only time, by the way, in all of his writings. Look through all of his letters. This is the only place in all of his letters where he ever does this, this charge. And here, more than anywhere else in the letter, there is the strong sense that Paul is handing Timothy the keys. He's passing the baton. He's headed out, and Timothy, I'm handing it over to you to carry this thing on. There is the strong sense of a transfer in these words from Paul. His words are heavy. They're deadly serious. He calls on God to bear witness not only to the issuing of this charge, but also to its receipt on Timothy's end. He reminds Timothy of the righteous judge before whom all must one day give an account on the day of his appearing. And this is what he so solemnly charges Timothy to do. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, this is something I want you to realize here. Of course, Paul is writing to Timothy, a pastor, a leader in the church. And I think it's very easy, uh, maybe, for us to say that this is a unique charge that he's giving to Timothy. And I think it would be best to understand it as this is given especially to such a one as Timothy. Most of the time in the Bible, when we see qualifications for leaders among God's people in the church... Like if you go to that list of qualifications in Timothy and Titus, look through those and ask which one you're exempt from. <laughs> which one is God okay with you not living out? I think Christian leadership is first and foremost understood as a demonstration of how to be a follower. Uh, Christian leaders in the church are not like in that sense of being a guru, where they, they have a separate standard applies to them. It's just that in a very um, important way, they must live out what should be normative for all Christians. If Timothy is not a preacher of the Word, then the church will not be a people of the Word. They will not be proclaimers of the Word either. And so what I want you to see, I, don't, I want to disabuse you of the idea that what Paul is saying to Timothy does not apply to you. Or maybe it only applies to Pastor Josh or Pastor Aaron or Pastor Andrew. Uh, 
or maybe the people on the board? I don't think so. Let me ask you this. Does the Bible command all Christians to share the content of the Bible with the world? That is a command given from our God to all of His people. All of His people that applies to. And so what we see here is is Paul saying to a leader of the church, let it begin with you. If it's not lived out and real with you, it will not be real in the church that you are trying to lead. So it's especially true for Timothy, but it's no less true for all of us. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. It's interesting here that he begins with this word preach and he ends the sentence with the word teach. Is there a difference between the two? I think there is. And I think one of the things we can see in the difference here is, have you guys ever, um, like if you've ever watched the news, uh, people like a newscaster, newscasters are not chosen for the most part because they are particularly wise or thoughtful. They're chosen because they have good hair. <laughs> they're not unpleasant to look at, and their voice is not distracting or weird. The job of a newscaster is to preach. I'll explain. They herald the facts. If you go back to like medieval times and they would have like a town crier, the town crier didn't tell you what to do. They told you what had happened. That's the job of a newscaster. A newscaster is somebody who comes on at the appointed hour and tells you what has happened in the world not necessarily what you should do in response to it. And that's preaching. And this is really the core essence of the Christian message. Christian message is not primarily what to do, but it's a telling of what has been done for you. This is the the stuff of evangelism. Evangelism is telling the world what has been done for them. That's preaching. That's heralding. That's proclaiming. You proclaim what's been done. But then he finishes with teaching, which is an explaining and a statement about what you should do in response to what has been done. I think you can only teach, as I understand it from the Bible, people who have the Holy Spirit within them to receive that teaching. So it begins with preaching. It begins with a proclamation of what has been done for you, and Paul brings it around quite wisely to teaching, that once you have rested your faith and your trust in what's been done for you, then there is the sanctification process. There is the process that follows having put your trust in Jesus and what He's done for you, and now, what do I do? How do I become more like Jesus? How do I live for Him? How do I obey That's the stuff of teaching. And there are people within the church who are gifted and called to that, but in some ways, we all do it. My guess is that if you're, for example, a parent, or you help in junior church, or you're taking drinking coffee in the gym after the service, and something comes up in a conversation, and there's some bit of wrong thinking there, you're going to engage in some teaching. And we all do it. And so here between proclaiming, heralding, preaching, and teaching, 
He also says this, be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience. It's interesting to me, you know, it wasn't until the 1500s that somebody came along and put chapters and verses in our Bibles. That didn't exist when Paul wrote this letter to 2 Timothy. He didn't say, okay, this will be verse 5 now. And (laughs) and he put a little number 5 there and then wrote his thoughts. That actually happened in the 1500s, I think in France. Thank you, French people, right? They do sometimes do good things. I (laughs) like. Anybody here from France today? Okay, good. All right. I don't know why they let me speak publicly. It's a big, (laughs) big mistake. But this chapter break is very artificial between chapter three and chapter four. At the end of chapter three ends with him giving that very famous couple of verses about how all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then he transitions into chapter four saying, preach the word. This thought is continuous in Paul's mind, but we break it up with this artificial chapter break. It's very important. Chapter 3 is all about living the gospel, and chapter 4 is all about with words proclaiming, teaching the gospel. And I think we really can understand if we transition from chapter 3 to chapter 4 that what Paul is exhorting Timothy to do is is to live and to speak. And these are the twin pillars of all of our witnesses. The the, the twin pillars that support your testimony before the fallen world is living the truth and speaking the the truth. Speaking the truth and living in a way that agrees with it. And so the Word of God straddles the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4. The Word is key. And then he says, be ready in season and out of season. This reminds me of 1 Peter 3.15 which says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Always be prepared, in season and out of season. I'll confess to you, I don't know what Paul meant when he said in season and out of season. I don't know. But I think just any of us would read that statement, and we kind of come away with the idea that it's be ready whenever it's demanded of you. I was talking with, uh, I've talked with a number of pastors. Pastor Andrew just had this experience down in Mexico where they wanted him to speak. And, (laughs) you know, sometimes when people are, pastors go on missions trip, I've heard tons of stories about how they're surprised by, they show up at some church and they say, oh, we want you to speak now. I'm like, (laughs) I don't know what I would do. I'm not that kind of pastor. I don't think quickly on my feet. You give me a week to prepare and I might sound okay, but... (laughs) But if you just say, just start talking now, I'll be like, I can't handle it. I don't know what to do. But Paul says, be ready in season and out of season. Be ready at the unexpected times. Be ready when you're getting your oil changed. Be ready in seasons where things are going great, and be ready when seasons it is not well received. Be ready to open your mouth and proclaim the truth of the Bible when it's good and when it's bad, when you're tired and when you're ready. Be ready. And then he says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And what I take away from this is you cannot, uh, I I will say this, I think probably um, 
the hardest time for a pastor to preach probably is in like the first year of arriving at a new church because you don't know the people yet. Uh, you don't, it, this is why I, I'll confess to you, I, don't, I have a hard time doing preaching at, at summer camp meetings. I don't know the context. I don't know who I'm talking to. It's difficult for me to craft a message with, that I think will um, be fitting and helpful because I don't have a clue who I'm talking to or their level of understanding or where they're coming from. And so part of this idea of reproving, rebuking, correcting is just simply the idea of having an understanding of people that you're talking to. I think part of this is that, um, is that we have to have lives that are interconnected enough that we can do this. Like, how are you going to rebuke me if you don't have re- access to the reality of my thinking or my life? How would you ever reprove me? I think part of what Paul is calling Timothy toward here is a deep personal relational investment in the people he's seeking to serve. Be in their homes, have them in yours, build lives with them. And I think that's part of what he's talking about. And then, of course, as part of that, then comes the risky calling to be brave and say, in love, I don't think that's quite right, or (laughs) that's tough. It's easier to do that with a stranger than with people that you're friends with, where you're deeply committed, but that's also where it needs to happen, I think. And then he says this to Timothy, with complete patience. Uh, I, I have talked to lots of Christian leaders over the years who were amazing, uh, amazing in their motivations, amazing in their giftedness, amazing in what they brought to the effort, so insightful, so full of energy, but they just struggle because they are seeing no growth in the people they're talking to. They just pour it out there every week, week after week, and they are so incredibly frustrated that their enthusiasm is met with apathy, that their love for righteousness is met with, that's true, but... They just get so frustrated because over time, the ball doesn't seem to be moving. And so Paul says to Timothy, be patient, stay the course, be steady and enduring in what you're, in what you're sharing. Righteousness grows like moss. Hang in there. Let the word do its work. And so these are, this is what he says to Timothy. And this is stuff that has been hard won for Paul. Be ready in season and out of season. Uh, when he was there in Athens doing some sightseeing, it says that he was provoked in his spirit. <laughs> I don't think he had any prepared remarks. He just hailed forth on Mars Hill. He was prepared in season and out of season. Uh, he had these divine appointments, things that would come up and And he would just prepare. Now, part of this, guys, and this is where it gets hard. I think think this church, a certain percentage, let's say 10% of us, really took seriously the charge to be prepared. 
Uh, like one way I think we could do this is a couple years ago, we all sought as a church to memorize the Romans road of salvation. There are those verses in Romans where if you memorize them, that, that helps you share the good news of the gospel with people who need to hear it. And many times we've unpacked that even at the conclusion of a service, we've walked through those verses. Be prepared. There is an, an aspect to this that Paul is saying to Timothy, and I think to you and to me, that this thing is so needed. It is so needed that it does call for some preparation on your part in order to, to be able to do it. Gaining um, some ability to share the story of how we became a Christian, gaining um, some pr- ability to share the, the Word of God with an unbelieving person, being intentional about being a, a, a person who has taken the truths of the Bible and has grown in them to a place where now you're of some use in discipling another Christian. What's amazing to me, you know, when we go back to that idea of like the, in chapter 2 when Paul is talking about the, the soldier, uh, the athlete, the farmer. Those are all very disciplined lives. You can't just one day go and do it without any training or preparation. Like when we even play soccer out here, I just think, you know, I'll just jump in and play soccer, but I'm in my 40s, I'm not in good shape, it doesn't work. I get gassed within a couple minutes and I have to go to the sideline. I can't do it. I'm not prepared. I haven't been conditioning my body for that. And I think right now there are many things in our lives that we're disciplined about, intentional about. We're going after it. And we're, we're gaining in our capacity and our abilities. But this is an area where sadly very few really discipline themselves in the Word of God to the point where they can share it. I think we can all proclaim, we can all herald, you have great hair, (laughs) you look good. You can say what's been done, we all can do that. But there is a place to grow in our ability to teach, to explain what naturally results from what has been done. What, 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 what difference does that make or what difference should that make? Now, here within our church family, we have a lot of people who are teachers of God's Word. I need to wrap this up. I think I might be the most visible and obvious of these, but there are many more Uh, Whether you lead your family in devotions, whether you talk to your kids about God in the car on the way to school, or you teach a Sunday school class, or you work in junior church, or you share at varsity, or facilitate a small group, whatever, we have a lot of people who are teachers in this church. We should all remember that we preach and teach before God. This is what uh, Paul says to Timothy in his solemn charge. No Bible, and what this means is that no Bible teacher ultimately goes unnoticed. We might go unnoticed by others. We might be overlooked and unappreciated, unrecognized. We might not be invited to share with a broader audience. But although the spotlight never fought, uh, just fails to shine on you, you're never out of the eyes of God. And this helps all of us approach the task of proclaiming or explaining God's Word with the right attitude. 
because God sees the Bible teacher who continues faithfully and patiently without the reward of recognition or appreciation or a broader growing audience. That person should not be discouraged. God sees, and because that is so, their ministry is eternally important. And the Bible teachers who occupy a more visible role, who get more attaboys, should not grow arrogant. Their ultimate evaluation will not come from people, but from God. The Bible teacher who thinks they are too big for a small assignment will in the end prove too small for a big one. And I think the questions that all Bible teachers should ask are these. Is God pleased? Is He honored with how I treated His Word? Is He pleased with my motives? Do I live a life that agrees with the words that I say? Is He pleased with my attitude and care for His people? And in a day filled with people who adapt the Word of God to make it more palatable to itchy ears, am I preaching and teaching in a way that's faithful to God rather than to the expectations of an audience? Paul says, "...for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching." But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. What are those own passions? Love of self, love of money, love of pleasure. And we see it happening in our own day. (laughs) A lot. People reorganizing the Word of God to line up in a way that suits the passions of men. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths As for you, he says to Timothy and to us, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So in summation, and I'll stop with this, in all of 2 Timothy, all of its four chapters, his counsel, his last words were that the word, the gospel should be guarded because it's essential and needed. The gospel is worthy of enduring hardship and suffering for because in the end, it will be worth it. The word should be lived out in our lives personally because it is life-giving and excellent. It brings joy and happiness. And that word, the gospel, should be proclaimed because it is the only way of salvation. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these four weeks that we have spent in 2 Timothy. Thank you for the way that you have challenged and spoken to us along the way. And Father, I just am so uh, grateful uh, for, for these words that you inspired Paul to write to Timothy and that have been preserved for us. Father, I pray that you'd help us to grow in them. God, grow these words in our hearts. Help us to live them out as a people. Father, I'm so grateful for my friends here at State Road, and just pray, Lord, that you would knit us together more and more in the years to come. And Father, I just pray, Lord, you would help us to live these things out here, that we would guard the gospel, that we would stand ready to endure whatever comes because of that stand that we would live it out here among us, among one another, and within our church family. And God, that the...
combined unified testimony of our church family as we live that together and as we seek to proclaim it would be the gospel. God, help us to herald the facts. And as people grow on the other side of belief, God, that we would disciple them through a right teaching and understanding and explaining of your word. So God, grow us in these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.